Okay, got it. Good afternoon. I am speaking to the lovely Greg Moss today. <laughs> Good afternoon, Greg. Would you Hi like there. To introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, okay. Well, just very fortuitously, I happen to have a little stack of books here because it's all go at the moment. So um, we last spoke about Murder at Church Lodge, which was back in July. Since then, um, the paperback of the, my thriller, The Coming Darkness, was supposed to come out in September, but it was delayed in November so it could go into a supermarket Christmas deal. So November, The Coming Darkness paperback. And virtually simultaneously, within seven days, follow up to Murder at Church Lodge, Murder at Bunting Manor. And you, um, you catch me now today, sat over there in my writing chair with the red rug on the top of it because it's been cold. Um, I'm actually doing the um, copy edit of Murder at the Theatre, which is the third one. So if you can imagine a cover like that, or a cover like that, and it says murder at the theatre, that's what I'm currently working on. And that will be out, that will be sent to you, Donna, in March next year. <laughs> exactly, March next year. So that's what I'm doing. And, um, and to be honest, it's a struggle at the moment because my wife, Kate Moss, and I, we've just been on the most extraordinary um, lit fest on the Queen Mary 2. So Sunday, not the one just gone, but the one before, we, we drove down to Southampton and we got on board the Queen Mary at something, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock lunchtime. And, uh, you know, we found a cabin, had coffee, drank a Cosmopolitan in a martini glass. Good start, right? Of course, we're in the harbour at this point. We're alongside the dock and the water is absolutely calm. Anyway, we pull away about, um, I think they call it sail away at five o'clock. And this vast boat, the size of two or three hotels, just sidles silently away from the concrete dockside. And then he's piloted out into the Solent, past the Isle of Wight, into the wild grey seas of November. And it was completely terrifying. I was on the little balcony of the of the cabin looking over the side. So it's dark by now, completely dark because it's November. Looking over the cabin at the side and the boat has got illumination so that you can at night so that you can see the sea. And the pilot boat that's escorting this huge liner out through the sandbanks so it doesn't run aground is down there. And of course on the ship, I'm thinking this is waving about quite a lot. I'm not sure if I like this. But down there, the little pilot boat was jumping like a cork <laughs> in a washing machine. It was, it was terrifying. And then I discovered, because the captain came over the tannoy about half an hour later, and he said, we have succeeded in disembarking the pilot. And I asked him later what that meant. What that meant was the pilot climbed down a bloody ladder down the outside of the liner to get into the pilot boat which is even more terrifying, isn't it? And I asked him later on when we were talking, if you hadn't been able to disembark him, what would have happened? He said, well, we'd have taken him to New York, wouldn't we? <laughs> Seriously, I said, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, yeah, we could take him. Sometimes we might drop him off somewhere else if there's calm seas, but there were no calm seas. I said, are you saying that there are untidy seas for the entire seven <laughs> days? More or less, he says. So um, the next morning I go down to breakfast and it's Monday and um, I meet my agent, Luigi Bonomi, and his wife, Alison Bonomi, who's also an agent, at a table in the dining room. They both look rather green and they say to me, how are you? In a loaded way. And of course I reply, well, I'm fine, as I wave <laughs> from side to side, looking forward to my avocado and poached egg. And in fact, it was okay, because the ship is so big. But some of the uh, performers in the Literary Festival at Tea, uh, sorry, at Sea, organised by Cheltenham and the Times and the Sunday Times, some of them were sick and one person actually had to run off stage at one point to be sick um end of story we were very reassured kate and i when we were told by the captain that two of his crew members had to leave the bridge because they were unwell wow. and um and to hear that the the weather on the monday and the thursday when it reached um force 10 with these seven meter to 15 meter waves, oh my God, was the worst that he'd experienced. Oh. Anyway, so we arrive in New York a week later and, um, and New York is obviously a very noisy and busy city. And also you're kind of disoriented because every, almost every night of the week you turn your watch back so you sort of gain an hour every day. So he's got this creeping sea lag <laughs> style jet lag. Eventually in New York, where Kate and I spent 36 hours because we had some meetings to do with different people. And um, and she find, found that she's obviously she's much smaller and slimmer and lighter than I am. And I think that made a difference because when she was on land, she was still sort of waving back and forth <laughs> as she went up and down stairs with um, strange sea legs once ashore. Anyway, there we are in New York. And then um, on the Monday night, an overnight flight back to England, arrive at eight o'clock in the morning and first meeting back in England at 10 o'clock. So... An extraordinary experience, an absolutely amazing experience, but quite draining. Yeah. So there. Okay, I'll let you off a little bit. Still tiny. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working at Greg's that whole time. Pretty much. Yes. I think I had one day off, maybe. That was it. So. And you've had lovely customers every day, appreciative of how much you help them. Uh, showing due consideration to the staff. Isn't that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yes, of course. Some days, some days, sometimes, yeah. some people. So they've actually started a petition now for the way that retail staff are treated because the abuse is so bad in every retail environment. It's terrible, they... isn't it? Yeah. It really is horrendous. People are unbelievable, but there we are. That's a... Have you got, um, have you got, um, like like lots of retailers talking about a shoplifting policy, like a new shoplifting policy. Do you have to do that? Or is everything so sort of behind glass on the counters that it doesn't no. affect you? No, they just come in, help themselves and leave. It yeah, really it's is. Not, and there's not nothing, good. obviously, we're not supposed to apprehend them, especially here at Luton, where they probably have a knife. Because um, we're at real risk of being seriously injured or killed. So... 
you've got to let him go. But, you know, it's hundreds of pounds sometimes that they're taking. It really is shocking. The shoplifting is horrendous. It is shocking, absolutely. But the shop over opposite, because I work in a shopping centre, yesterday or the day before, someone jumped over the counter to take the perfume that's behind the counter. They actually jumped over the counter to get it. Now, you see, on the the Queen Mary 2, I could have done that, but then I would have had the conundrum that I was there on the Queen Mary 2 with a bottle of stolen perfume, and what do I do? (laughs) This was another thing that I put to the captain. So we had this brilliant bridge tour. So not bridge the card game, but we were taken up to the bridge at the top of the ship and shown how to how the ship runs and of course because i was there with val mcdermott and claire mcintosh and a bunch of other you know writers and among them crime writers most of the questions were about how could i kill someone on the ship and get away with it or 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 at the very least steal something and it turns out that the jurisdiction on board ship is related to the flag that the ship flies the ship, mm-hmm. the Queen Mary II, Cunard, does not fly the uh, the UK ensign. It flies the Bermudan flag. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because Bermuda enacted a law such that sh- uh, people could be married at sea. And the UK government has never done that. And so Cunard switched to the Bermudan flag in it seems like it's just a formality in order to be able to marry people at sea. And that's something that the captain can do. Um, it also turned out that the captain has the authority to detain somebody. Mm-hmm. So could, you know, if I did something bad, he could lock, lock me in the cabin under surveillance and blah. Um, and he said, having removed all dangers from the premises, which is quite an exciting thought. Anyway, um, but if I asked him, if someone was, who who would like take the miscreant to court? And that would be the Bermudan police. And we talked about this a little further and Val McDermott had uh, questions about due process and Claire McIntosh wanted to know about getting off the ship without being um, recorded as having left the ship. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. you're sort of processed onto the ship with your passport and so on. Can you be can you get off without being processed? I bet there's a way we studied it. Anyway, um I said to him in the end with all this Bermudan stuff, what I'm hearing, Skipper, is if I steal a bottle of perfume, you have to take me to Bermuda. <laughs> and he said, no, that's not how it works at all. But I don't why not? I mean, that was my that was where I wanted to end up, Bermuda. And no, this is what I was thinking the whole time you were speaking is if you had to go to court in Bermuda, does that mean that they then? But no, is the answer then? Exactly. You're in Bermuda. So you're already quids in. <laughs> yeah. What happened to the Bermuda Triangle as well? Like when I was a kid, this was a big thing. And now it doesn't exist. Well, I, I think that is because word of mouth and anecdote can't be relied upon i'm afraid um i remember those books i'm trying to remember the name eric von Danikin. he wrote a number of books where he he embroidered very sophisticated fantasies out of a few unrelated geographical or historical details and he was a very plausible writer I still know people who talk about that stuff as if it's still true. 
Anyway, yeah. I, I'm assuming that we avoided the Bermuda Triangle because here we are. Yeah, well, yeah. That's good. Yeah, agreed. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, try not to end up in Bermudan Court, I guess, because, yeah. That's the goal. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. <laughs> I'm sure you don't need to steal perfume anyway. I'm going to try and get by without doing so. <laughs> You've managed so far in life, so. Yeah, know. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> or anything, don't steal any. That's more or less the message from <laughs> this podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> don't steal from shops is our message so far. We've avoided books for the time being, and we've gone straight <laughs> for crime. Definitely don't steal books. That is, you know, if anyone steals books, don't just turn off now. I don't want to know you. Go away. Yeah, quite. Actually, Kate was at an uh, AI conference this week um, at a pub uh, her publishing house discussing all of that. I, I've not seen her yet because um, she's busy with some other meetings, so she's not got home yet. Uh, but I'm really interested to find out what was said. It's such a such a live issue. Um, I can't remember. Were you at Fatal Shore in Shoreham this year? Were you able to come to that? Sure. Yes, I was. Yeah, I've been so, to so many. I can't remember. Yes, I was. Yeah, I, I get to feel like that sometimes too. Um, do you recall uh, somebody on one of the platforms talking about the fact that he uses Chat GPT for a first draft, and then he makes it good? He like generates yeah. text using it. Yeah, that was. Um... It was a guy that I'd never heard of before that was actually really interesting. He was really interesting. I, 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 I remember I, his name. How bad is that? Well, that's, that's all right. it'll, it'll come back to us, perhaps. Yeah, it was, maybe. But I think in all of these conferences, there's, um, there's, a dis, there's an attempt to discuss it as if it's not like the Terminator movies, but it's also not completely benign. It's somewhere in between, and we need to manage it and so on. But... You know, time will tell. I mean, I think there is a, there's the whole AI that is generating books, you know, in chat GBT, GPT, whatever it is. But then, you know, you can argue that um, some of these like Grammarly and stuff are um, AI and, you know, Canva and stuff are producing AI things. So it's sort of been in the background. It's only now that it seems to have come to the fore because it's possible to create whole books. Yeah. Elements so, of it that we've been using for years, really. So somebody on, um, somebody on, I think it was on Amazon, Val said, so has put a bunch of Val McDermott novels into a language model and is trying to sell novels in the style of Val McDermott. I mean, on balance, that's clearly wrong. <laughs> just you know mad mad that that should exist irresponsible of the platform to host it let me just say i'm not absolutely certain it was on amazon but it was on a platform whoever the platform is it's irresponsible to host it in the same way that it's irresponsible of twitter or facebook to host hate speech you know they are publishers they they pretend that they're not publishers but they actually are because they're disseminating Yes. text and images and media and so on it's uh yeah it's in the end it's about taking responsibility isn't it 
yeah. I, for for authors and for platforms and so on. But I do, I do remember years ago, uh, may, maybe 10 years ago at the Harrogate Theakston's old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, a discussion that turned on um, the, uh, so self-publishing, but then all the different mechanisms for trying to make sure your book got seen. And there was an author there talking quite openly about the fictional accounts that he'd created, multiple accounts, in order to sort of cross-fertilize his books with other people's books and write reviews for them and star them up and all the rest of it. And um, I don't know, it's, uh, it, it seems to me that maybe, I don't know, may, maybe I'm wrong in this, but it, I, I always think, wouldn't your time be better spent writing another book? You know, all of that effort you, you put into it. And um, so, A, the more books you write, the better you get at writing books. And B, the people who like your books, which can never be everybody, but the people who like your books, well, it's good news if there's another one, right? Always, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, there you are. Um, how's book reading for you? Have you been very busy? Yeah, always. And I'm really down on my book reading. Last year, I read just short of 200 over the year, I think. But with one month to go, I'm lucky if I'm going to reach 150, which is really low. It's still me. a lot. Three a week is still a lot. I suppose because I decided to organise book festivals, maybe, took up yeah. a lot of my reading time. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but yeah, it still feels like I've read loads. And I've read some incredible books this year as well. Um, feels fantastic. Like really really good year for reading and how I'm going to possibly get that down to a top 10 I've no idea right yes of course well I'm very fortunate with the uh the theatre writing program that I run because I have my my son Felix Moss works with me I'm able not to have to take responsibility for every bit of it and that's made a big difference to me as I'm since lockdown writing all these books, which is as much as a surprise to me as it is to the world. Um, Felix has been super helpful there. And excuse me, this light is a bit bright. And in other news, um, Felix has recently completed, I think it's the fourth draft of the brilliant fantasy novel that he's written. Um, he calls it low fantasy. That means it's, perhaps you know this if you're a fantasy reader, that means it's... Um, it's in a world that has a lot of normal things, you know, people eat, sleep, get up, go to the toilet, etc. But it also has the extra normal elements, like the the special substance or the um, the artifact from a past civilization that does things, and we're not sure how, and you know that that sort of thing. It's a really brilliant novel, and I hope that that will be. Um, that will be published next year. Fingers crossed. We'll wait and see. I didn't. I've heard of high fantasy, which isn't my thing at all. I didn't realise there was a low fantasy, but now you say that, it makes total sense, and I love that. Whereas high fantasy, I'm not really a fan of. When everything is different and strange, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like I like SF as well. Uh, there's a couple of TV series, science fiction series that I really enjoy, and. Um, I really like world building. So in so yeah, so in um in the Coming Darkness trilogy, 
Um, so there's next April, the coming storm will come out. And then at some point after that, the coming fire, which uh, when I finished editing the third cozy book, I'll go back to writing the coming fire. I think I haven't got very long to go. I just basically got the last, like the final big showdown, 15,000 words to write, which is great. Um, so yes, the, um, the connections between all of those things. But I don't know if I said this to you when we were talking about Murder at Church Lodge, but in Murder in Bunting Manor, the second one, um, there's a character who is only 16 years old in this book in 1972. And I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, I wrote a couple of sort of first drafts of two different novels, both about 60,000 words about a character in 1982 who is 26. And that woman is the woman from Murder at Bunting Manor 10 years later. And I love those sorts of connections between, between novels. And, you know, I've got in the back of my mind an idea to go back to those unfinished novels, which I wrote, in fact, um, because I was did I tell you this? I was teaching at the South Bank Centre and I wrote them as part of National November Writing Month alongside my students and like sharing what I was coming up with to, to be, try and be encouraging. Um, and um, so they exist and I can come back to them. But even more, a, a further connection is um, earlier this year, I had a gap in my timetable. So I wrote the first novel of a new series set in the present day in 2023 november 2023 in fact and the hero of my new series which um as obviously has not been sent out yet to publishers or anything is a an elderly theater director who has never retired but his phone no longer rings and he comes upon this investigation that nobody else knows is a thing and he solves it very brilliantly. Anyway, um, he is a microscopically minor character in the third Maisie Cooper mystery, the one that I'm currently copying editing, Murder at, Ch uh, at the Theatre. And um, that's set in 1972, when he's a very young man, an early career de detective. So he is... 24 at that point early career very early career director and 51 years later he's got his own novel <laughs> <laughs> i love authors that do that i love it when there's links between i think that's brilliant yes it is isn't it yeah, it's yes. it's the greg moss cinematic universe to coin a phrase <laughs> <coughs> uh, now that is another thing about retail isn't it like when i was a school teacher you get all the germs going yeah i mean we've got a screen but um yeah i'll survive i'm sure you will yeah my drink's out of reach so i can't get it anyway do you have any fearsome <laughs> questions for me um let me think <laughs> i have i have a book here I have. oh good i'm glad they sent you a real one 
Um, I didn't yes. want them to just send you a NetGalley token. <clears throat> well, she did ask, actually. I was like, no, I want a real one. Yeah, then I can... have a real one. You're right. No idea where I'm going to put it. I've got, another, I've got Mark Edwards as well in the post today. So Good. two books to try and find. So number 696 of 2000. Special, special one. Oh, did they do numbered copies? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so. I think I need to write more books if I want to get like numbered copies going out there. Yeah. Or as Ian Rankin says, search for a rare unsigned copy of an Ian Rankin book. They're very valuable. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Anyway, what uh what are your questions? Um I was just reading it actually at work during my lunch break as well um just to remind myself and uh i have to say i love uh, your writing style and um, it's really beautiful you're very Thank you. very descriptive which was really cool um and was that something conscious because it was cozy or was that just how you write so i think i think it is conscious because it's cozy because you want that you know a bit like the covers are so sort of hyper real really strong colors and all the rest of it i mean especially church lodge but bunting manor too so there is that there's also the fact that i have um uh, uh i see it um i see it very vividly myself because like i said to you last time I was 11 years old in 1972, living in these South, South Southwest Sussex villages and very much this poor kid from this poor single parent family with three children and ragged clothes and all the rest of it. And um, so everything I saw, I felt a bit outside of, you know, the well-off people that had cars and televisions and all the rest of it. And so... Um, so I saw it very vividly and pictorially myself. So I think that has an impact on it. But I also like, um, I like books that um, build, the, build the world uh, pictorially and vividly, like, um, like there's a camera showing you this and showing you that and showing you that, and bit by bit the world becomes complete and three-dimensional in your mind. That's that's what I like. So I guess you do what you like, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know um, if you've heard of a thing called aphantasia. Go for it. Where people don't have an internal image. Yep. So, which I have. I can't see anything in my mind's eye. So I like really descriptive books because I can't see and I can't imagine. So the more that's written for me, the better it is for me to imagine the, the picture of the, the place. So Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. If I think apple, I can see an apple in my mind's eye. And it's not just the word. There's a picture as well. I think it's really interesting how people respond to language. There's a... Um, when I when I was training to be a teacher, I read these because I was teaching modern languages. I read a lot of studies of how people learn and how people uh, become fluent at different ages and different languages and why it is at sort of 11, 12, 13, people lose the ability to learn a language naturally and they have to study it and learn it by rote and all the rest of it. And it's, it's, and it's, uh, sorry, this is a small digression, but apparently it's an evolutionary trait right so if you and i were 
born to a tribe in some distant valley in the Alps, let's say, right? And we didn't travel very far. By the time we're 11 or 12 or 13, we've learned the only language we will ever need. And therefore, it shuts down. What they call, what um, the scientists call the language acquisition system in the brain shuts down. <laughs> which is why it's so rare that uh, so there are, there are people for whom because everybody's different there are people for whom the language acquisition system remains sort of alive and constant and scientists don't seem to know why it is that that's the case and people can learn languages very fluently later in life um but mostly that's your um after that it's hard work mm. yeah it's interesting yeah anyway back to your thing of aphantasia uh, the yeah, the ability to picture it, um, I think also in, in crime, because it's about a puzzle, um, you need to reiterate the facts of the puzzle, don't you? Yeah. Not in every chapter, but you need to, in chapter seven, you need to come back to that thing in chapter two. You have to bring it back. Whatever it was that happened back then, you have to bring it back and see it in a new light. I think that might be part of it as well. And it's interesting you said about writing, about not having much money, which is something that I noticed as well. And I thought that was really interesting. So it's not something you sort of, it gets touched on, but generally it's sort of either it's assumed or or people are just middle class. So I thought that was really interesting and really nice to read, actually. So it, it is true, isn't it? Lots of cosy crime is about comfortable people. And that's part of the coziness. Not not all of it by any means. Yeah. <laughs> but then I suppose if somebody's life is sort of on a knife edge, it's not cosy, is it? <laughs> no, true, I suppose. So yeah. Vazim Khan's <laughs> hero, Purvis, for example, the, the moments that don't feel cosy, and those books are fantastic, the moments that don't feel cosy, though, are the ones where you think there could be uh, violence against women against her specifically or she could lose her job because she's already sort of clinging on by her fingernails in a job where people don't want her and that does change the tone doesn't it yeah. and and um and vaz does really well to um to to uh, manage that drama and then solve it and move on so it's not like a constant shadow yeah I must. I didn't realise his books were crazy necessarily, but then I suppose when I think back, it's like, oh yeah, nothing really gross happens. So yeah, I guess it makes sense. You know what he says? <laughs> he he says. In fact, he said this at Fatal Short on one of those panels. He said um, that cozy crime is a book. So regardless of content, where you feel good at the end, because everything's been put right. And I, I did a workshop on, on, the, on the cruise liner. I, we had 30 people packed into this room, all different shades of green. And, um, and it was about how to write cozy crime. And I was talking about the fact that, no, there, there isn't what they call um, injury detail, right? You know, you see that sometimes on films and TV shows. Or, and there isn't, um, there isn't this pervasive sent, uh, threat of sexual violence, which is often the case in thrillers. It's not something that I do, but other people do. I mean, not in thrillers, my thrillers either. Um, 
But at the end, once the bad thing has been isolated and removed, then everything's fine. See, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. The world is fixed. Yeah. I mean, what do you think as well about the whole cosy genre or the, the name? Because some people call them, uh, what do they call them? Sort of old style mysteries rather than cosy. Yeah. So when I when I was um, the first um, novel in this area that I ever read was by the uh, New Zealand writer Nio Marsh, and it's called Clutch of Constables. And what happens is, so she's got this series detective Roderick Allen, who is exactly like you're suggesting, well off, middle class, well bred. And it's almost by accident that he's a police officer rather than, you know, something else like a diplomat or a high up civil servant or even an officer in the army. Um, anyway, the book's got this this clever framing device that he is telling a set of um, trainee detectives about this puzzle that he got involved with, which took place on a narrow boat on like the Norfolk Broad, somewhere like that. And he knew about it, but could do nothing about it because he was away on a conference tour in the United States and his wife was on board sending him letters about it and telegrams, you know, when they stopped in the different towns. So which that's a really nice framing device. And of course the, um, you know, the countryside, the, the river and the canal, through the flatlands and the spire of the cathedral in the distance slowly coming closer and the lovely summer days and all the rest of it but in the midst of that there is murder and the murderer must be identified and therefore stopped anyway it was the first one i'd ever read and i, I was probably about um i don't know 13 or 14 and it was in um <coughs> excuse me a reader's digest abridged edition so it wasn't even the whole novel but the thing that struck me was it had this complete puzzle that all the clues were there and somebody you or i donna reading it could work it out if we could separate the the real clues from all the other stuff that happens. So there's that, isn't there? So back in those days, that was called a classical puzzle whodunit. Josephine Tay, Agatha Christie, Marjorie Allingham, Nio Marsh, others. And, um, and then I think maybe it's the influence of TV adaptations that have sort of grown this idea of coziness. Whereas for me, the thing that I like in Murder at Church Lodge, Murder at Bunting Manor and so on, I like the fact that there aren't horrific injuries, that there isn't sexual violence and all of those things. But I like above all that it's a solvable puzzle based in character. And if you understand the people in the book, if I've made you understand the people in the book well enough, you should be sort of catching up with the detective, with Maisie Cooper, as she's working it out. That's the idea. And I think I've also heard at one of these festivals that it's a um, small area or an enclosed 
um, location mystery as well. You people don't really travel in cozies. It's all sort of in one town or whatever. We talk about that a lot in theatre, actually. You know, um, in a movie, like a James Bond movie, we can be in Brighton one day, Algiers the next, then New York, or even simultaneously. And all that action, right, that's really hard to do in the theatre. Theatre is much more um, a limited number of locations, obviously a limited number of characters, because actors are expensive and you can't afford that many unless you're the National Theatre. And... Weirdly, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who um, around 300 BC was talking about um, what he called the unities, unity of place, unity of time, unity of protagonists and antagonists. Um, he, he thought all of these things were really important in drama. And um, my, my novels are chronological. There might be a flashback, but it's very carefully sort of self-contained. It's a, you know, I tell you it's a flashback. It's a little story that's in chronological order back then. And then we're back in the present and it progresses. So that sort of unity of time, um, the, the cozy crime novels, each one of them has a, a cast of characters at the beginning because these are the important people and nobody else. Right. It's it's not about the prime minister, even though in Murder at Church Lodge, there's um, there are strikes and power cuts. It's not about whoever's prime minister and, you know, all of that. It's just about these people. Um, and yes, limited to um, a particular place. And isn't isn't that to do with that thing I was saying about it being a solvable puzzle? Because it, it it can't be Mr. or Mrs. X from somewhere else who did it. It has to be these people right here in this place right now. Exactly, yeah. Which makes them easier reads as well, I guess, because you're not keeping up with characters from all over the place and different locations, and you know, which are cozies are supposed to be easier reads as well, aren't they? So I guess that all comes into it. I think... Also, they're easier reads because um, if people who like setting a good puzzle, you know, pay a lot of attention to it. So, um, so you know, I'm, I'm doing my best. We all do our best, right? I sent a fifth draft to be copy edited. And I finished going through all of the copy edits. They're all marked up in Word, in track changes yesterday at the end of the day so that's now a sixth draft and then this morning when i got up at 6 30 and went to my computer i started again so all the all the copy edit changes are all gone now and i've got a clean text but i know that in doing all of those things i will have made a few small mistakes of continuity or spelling and so so here i am and another long day um and I'll probably finish it. I'll finish it tomorrow morning, and um, I and I hope to leave it as clean as possible, because then I send it back, and all that's left is proofreading. And you don't want to be thinking, "Oh my God, that doesn't work. I said that was on the table, and it doesn't arrive until twenty pages later." All of that <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, I want to make sure that none of those things exist, because it's so easy to get in a tangle. But anyway. Um, 
yes, I want to do my best uh, and I want the readers to like it. Uh, but I also want, um, I also really want the puzzle to work. I was one of the one of the people at the festival because it's sponsored by the Times and Sunday Times was Richard Rogan, who is um, not a famous person, except in his world, because he's the editor of the Times and Sunday Times crosswords. Mm. So he's the person that oversees all of that, all of the puzzlers setting their different. And he did every day a Sunday Times cryptic crossword puzzle solving session in which he shared, you know, the the train of thought that you needed for every clue in order to solve it. And uh, some days were easier than others and so on. But he's the same, isn't he? He wants everything. He wants it all to be as good as possible for he wants it to be. A, he wants it to be mysterious and not too easy to get. But when you get it, he wants you to say, yes, of course. Yes. And that's what we want with a, with a puzzle who done it, don't we? We when it comes out, the reader ought to be saying, Yes, of course. But they didn't see it coming. Yeah. <laughs> um something that I've wanted to ask for other authors actually is do you think it makes you better at solving other people's mysteries? Yes. The mechanics and things of how they're creating their their story. Yes, I think it does. Um, and uh, because you automatically are looking out for things that you do, right? Um, uh, so in in Murder at the Theatre, there are um, a couple of clues um, really early on, which are related to one another, and they're, but they're separated by sort of 10 pages. And when Maisie Cooper, my hero, thinks about them later, she doesn't think about them together as a pair. She thinks about them in the context of six or seven other things. So a reader who's really good at solving puzzles will notice the two clues that are the important ones and discard the other six or seven. But not everybody will do that. And and that's fine, isn't it? It's yes. fine for there to be some people who get it on page 100 and some people who only get it on page 300. That's just, that's fine. See, people say, because I read a lot, that I must guess 99% of the time I don't, but then I'm not trying to necessarily. I suppose along with reading, you know, I'm following the story, so I'm trying to guess along with the characters, but I'm not really trying to go ahead and guess and and I don't guess any more than the average person. I don't think I, I very rarely get it. Then yeah, but then there's phase two as well. Even if you guess <laughs> who did it, there is how did they do it, why did they do it, and also um, and I think this is sometimes neglected. Is it will they will they be convicted, right? Because. Um, Sometimes, even in a cosy crime novel, you think, well, they're going to get away with that. And I, I'm, it's not a criticism, but that is less cosy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. If the perpetrator is identified, but they're going to get away with it, that's less cosy. 
they um they need to be and i guess that's that's a part of um the overall planning in uh, murder at church lodge and murder at bunting manor and murder at the theater um is that uh, so Maisie in Murder at Church Lodge is there and she's sort of trapped because it's an investigation into her brother's death. And she can't walk away from that. And then she can't go home to Paris because, well, the trial is coming. And she's stuck without employment in this place that as a child she called home. And now she doesn't know what's happening. Uh, and But she can't just get up and leave because the trial is coming and she is a fundamental witness and of course that persists into the third novel which because murder at church lodge is february 72 murder at bunting manor is the following month and murder at the theater is the month after that now it just so happens that in the sequence at that point or, or soon after the end of murder at the theater she is free because the trials have all happened, everybody's been convicted, who, everybody's in jail who ought to be in jail, and so on. But then, of course, something else happens in her life. Mm. And that's to do with the subplot with Sergeant Jack Wingard of Chichester Police, who I think we can all agree <laughs> is very handsome and very desirable as a, as a husband. Mm. But because of all the upset and the trauma and all the rest of it, Maisie has not been able to face that possibility. So before book four, or if you like, right at the beginning of book four, there's a change in that relationship and a sort of redeal of the cards. So even though um, all the repercussions of books one, two, and three have played out like off stage, because that would be really boring to tell you the story of the trials because you've read the book, right? Um, you've seen the action live, but that will happen before the uh, fourth one. And the fourth one, which is called Murder at Bitling Fair, which is another one of the villages named in the other novels. It's really close at hand. And, and the fair is like a fair of woodland crafts. Um, so, so a lovely sort of summer story. Um, set in the village and in the woods around and the sawmill and so on. Um, anyway, by the time that fourth book comes out in July, in our lives, 2024, but in Maisie's life, 1972, everything in her personal life will have changed. Like I said, a, a new deal of the cards. So that's for July next year. Awesome. It's funny, isn't it, how we still want romance. Like I was reading it, I'm like, for God's sake, woman, he's mad about you. What is wrong with you? Like seriously. And the That's... same in, in um Baz's books. It's yeah. Like, they need to get together. They're so and you know, and it's like a crime and God knows what's happening, and you just really want these two characters to finally see what we can see. I think that's really good to know. And I think when it goes on too long, it is annoying, isn't it? Yeah. yeah? If, it, if it becomes unconvincing. Now, we are nearly five o'clock, so I'm going to have to go and make my mum's tea. Otherwise, there'll be awful shouts coming up the stairs. And those shouts will include, can I have a gin and tonic, please? <laughs> so do you have any final um, questions before we um, sign off? I was just thinking of something now I've forgotten. Um, 
Well, you've just answered one of them, which was whether you're carrying on. Um, oh, God, yes. Good, that's good. That's uh, And you told us what you're doing next. Um, I guess not. So do you just want to show off your books again and then tell everyone where they can go buy them and why they should buy them because they're amazing? Hey, there you go. Why would I need to add to that? So like I said, so The Coming Darkness is in... Um, supermarket for christmas in paperback having spent a year in hardback um which is a thriller set in 2037 and is very different of course from the cozy crime novel set in 1972 murder at church lodge and murder at bunting manor both of which are out brilliantly read on audiobook by gareth armstrong who's a an actor director that i actually know from my other life my theater life um and I'm hard at work on the next one. What more is there to say? Available from all the usual outlets, darling. That's the answer. Yes, indeed. And I shall post my review shortly. Thank you very time. much. That's yes. super kind of you. Of course. Well, you were kind enough to send it to me or your person, your people. <laughs> <laughs> what, my elves? My Christmas elves? Yeah, you, you have people. It's fine. <laughs> okay, Donna, you've been lovely, as always. Um, let's let's speak again soon. Yes, I shall look forward to it. <laughs> okay. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>